Welcome to another episode of the Goldust Podcast. We know a lot of you enjoyed episode 53 with Alan Irvin based on the feedback that you did provide us. If you are enjoying the podcast and you haven't done so already, we'd greatly appreciate any review on the platform that you use. Before we give you a snippet of today's episode, we would like to mention it has been two years since the release of our number one best-selling book, Goldust, How to Become a More Effective Coach Quickly. If you haven't read it, or you know somebody who would enjoy it, Christmas is just around the corner. It's a great time to either treat yourself or somebody close to you. Now for today's episode. You can't guarantee success, but you can stack the odds in your favor by everything that you do or everything that you don't do. You can choose to stretch or not stretch after a session. You can choose to ice bath. You can choose to sauna. You can choose not to. You can choose to wear compression garments. And, you know, sometimes all these little things add up. Sometimes they're not available to you. COVID was a big test of that because we weren't allowed to have, um, you know, our soft tissue therapies. We weren't allowed to have ice baths and training. All these different things got taken away from us. So we had to look at new different ways to keep stacking the odds in our favor. Today, we're excited to welcome rugby league legend, James Graham, onto a powerful and emotional episode of the Golders podcast. Jammer, as he's known amongst his peers, Retired from Rugby League in 2020 as England's most capped player in history. He became a legend at his hometown club, St. Helens, before spending nine seasons in the NRL in Australia. Jammer moved back to St. Helens during Covid in 2020, finishing his illustrious career in spectacular fashion. The 2008 Super League Man of Steel is well known for his barnstorming runs, his relentless attitude and willingness to compete. But Jammer's philosophical approach to life really comes out in this episode. James Graham, Jammer, welcome and thank you for coming on to the Goldust podcast today. No, it's my pleasure, gents. Um, looking forward to uh, talking with you both. Obviously, I've I've heard a couple of your podcasts before and um, yeah, looking forward to, to seeing where this takes us. Well, we'll, we'll dive straight in. To us, Goldust is sprinkling particles of knowledge to help people. What does Goldust mean to you? Uh, well, yeah, so Goldust means to me it's the uh, the WWF wrestler who uh, was painted in gold. That um, I don't know, he was uh, one of the one from the noughties, I think, going up against the likes of the Undertaker and Stone Cold Mankind when I uh, when I used to love me wrestling. But um, now, in all seriousness, I think. And uh, gold dust to me probably just means the the small differences or the details. And I, I don't like this term too much, but sort of the, the, the one percenters. Well, James Jammer, as David's uh, call you, if I can, do I get permission to call you Jammer as well? Absolutely, mate. Yeah, fire away. <laughs> Thanks very much. Listen, if you had to describe James Graham, former professional rugby league player, what would you say about yourself? Um, well, like, firstly, probably someone who dislikes talking about himself. Um, that uh, um, sounds a bit strange, even though I'm, I'm coming on a podcast to, to talk about my career and stuff. But if you were if you're looking for words, probably um, a little bit different, um, very driven, and um, this is probably one that people have told me uh, throughout the years, um, especially those particularly close to me, uh, would be difficult. Um, but I don't necessarily look at that as a 
as a bad thing. You talk about yourself being different. You did a podcast with a, a mutual friend, someone that you work with, Nathan Mill, and a friend of his called the, the Physio Spill. You talk about being different. And for those who haven't heard it, it's a great podcast. So, so listening to that. But in that podcast, you actually talked about conformity or lack of and, a, and an experience that you had as a 16-year-old, I believe. Could you share that with us? And I think that'll paint a picture of what, what you mean by different. Yeah, so basically I did a psychology A-level um, and we were shown this experiment in this A-level class about um, how people behave. And, you know, everybody's asked in the group, if there was smoke coming into the room now, would you leave? And everybody goes, well, yes, of course. Um, but basically, we, we, we got to witness a tape of this experiment where, you know, the, the participants in the room, everybody's in on it. Um, apart from the one person, they don't know. Uh, and that person rotates to get different people in. And they're in a lecture room and the lecturer basically says to the group, don't go anywhere, I'll be back in a minute. So he goes back. He, 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 sorry, the lecturer leaves the room and smoke starts to fill the room. So all the people that are in on it, they don't leave. So the camera's on the one plant who doesn't know what's going on. And you can see them looking at the smoke. And they run this experiment about 20 times. And um, basically, I think what the, they concluded that one person would, would have got out alive because the conformity of seeing people around you not leave the room made you feel uncomfortable about leaving the room. And there's even a case there where one person asks, should we go? And the people that are in on it said, well, he did tell us to wait here. And we're all pretty shocked by it. And then our psychology lecturer sort of told us that this happened in real life. There was a department store fire where people were, a fire started to rip through this department store in England. And basically people started to queue up to pay for their food. And because they'd had their food already and it became a social conformity thing, unfortunately for these people, they end up queuing up to their deaths. And that's always sort of stay, stayed with me. Um, even little things that, you know, probably one example where I've implemented it into, into my life is um, when we get the, the coach or the bus, when, when I used to play, um, I'd put my seatbelt on on the bus and people would laugh. And I remember when I went to, when I signed at um, St. George, Illawarra Dragons, like one of my first away games, I get on the bus and put my seatbelt on. Someone takes a picture, like taking the mic, and I'm like, "What? Like, what's wrong with that? Like, you're on a you're on a mode of transport. Seatbelt saves lives, but because people are in that social conformity of like not putting it on, and you notice it next time you ever travel on by coach or by bus, people don't put their belts on, and it's kind of like I've never understood why. And yeah, so that's probably an example of, and even that if I'm getting piss ripped out of me which happens obviously rugby lads are, are pretty ruthless like oh James has got his seatbelt on your big nerd I'm like so what like I'm, I'm genuinely not bothered it's not going to affect you it, it might affect me so um, yeah and that that's probably a little bit on on sort of like um, yeah how I'm, how I'm a little bit different I guess well before we go into depth around your professional career we'll just take it back to your earlier years, 
and what they looked like in sports. What what was your what was your your formative years like in sports? Yeah, so again, probably on the on the different theme. Um, I'm I'm from a place called Magal, which is in Liverpool, which um, isn't known for any form of rugby. Basically, it's it's all football or, or soccer. Um, and the question is, are you a red or are you a blue? Do you support Everton or do you support Liverpool? But um, I got sort of ushered into rugby league from uh, my dad. He sort of um, took me down to a to a training session. He was always a fan. He came from Cumbria, uh, a little town called Maryport. Um, and he sort of ushered me that way. And to be honest, I, I went down. I, I didn't really know the rules. Um, I didn't know what was going on. I'm one of seven. So... Um, you know, within that household, there was lots of, um, there was always some uh, some action. There was always trouble. Um, and all this time I'm being told, you know, don't fight and don't wrestle with your brothers. Um, definitely don't fight or wrestle with your sisters. But then I got introduced to this game and I was just like, wow, all these things I'm being told not to do, <laughs> I'm allowed to all of a sudden do. So it was sort of love at first scrum. Really, I just fell in love with this game. I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, but yeah, it, it was just, I can remember it. The first, first, you know, my first introduction to the sport was a game. So I played and they said, do you want to come back on the, the next week for a bit of training? And I was like, absolutely, I do, yeah. So sort of progression there. But sort of at school, um, you know, I was probably what you'd call... Um, or describe as a, a good shit. Um, we all know what a bad shit looks like. I was sort of the, the good shit, the sort of just on the borderline a little bit. And um, yeah, like from from pretty from a pretty young age, rugby was the sort of axis upon which my world spun. And and um, it was, you know, the, the main decision maker in my life. And um, my, my family uh, paid a bit of a price for that as well. You know, being one of seven, dad was... You know, I was training and, and playing most weekends um, for a lot there, so he missed out on a lot of family time. But um, rugby was was my not just my world, but my whole whole family's world really. Um, a lot of things revolved around it. So, um, but yeah, I guess you know when I was sort of daring to dream about my career and or potential, um, I just I guess I just wanted to in inverted commas make it. I don't know what make it meant. And um, I used to walk to school with my best mate, um, Mavis, Mark Davis, and talk, talk up dream about playing, whether that meant one game for the first team or, you know, winning a league, winning a Challenge Cup, you know, making it in Australia or playing for your country. I, I don't know what quite making it meant, but that's what I wanted to do. Well, making it, you did, Jammer. Uh, daring to dream, what a, what a wonderful term. But you did eventually play over 450 games in your career, starting at St. Helens before moving to Canterbury Bulldogs and then St. George in Lawarra in Australia, then finishing your career in spectacular style at St. Helens in 2020, uh, which we'll touch on very shortly. It's fair to say you've had a good career, mate. But are there any defining moments where you knew professional rugby league was to be your chosen profession? Um, it, that, that's a strange one because I think, you know, you, you'd, you'd ask a lot of kids um, 
you know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they, they'd say, you know, sports person, you know, but it's not like, you know, oh, I'll get this qualification um, I'll work hard at school and, you know, I'll go and apply for a job. It's sort of just naturally happens. Actually, my, um, when we were at school, we did sort of some careers training and um, it was basically an algorithm where you answer these questions and it spits out a, you know, potential profession for you to try and pursue. So all this time I'm answering all the questions to try and get professional sportsmen. Like, how much would you agree with this statement? Do you like working outdoors? Strongly agree, agree, not sure, disagree, strongly disagree kind of thing. So I'm like, oh, I agree. Outdoors, athlete, all that. Anyway, it's spat out um, garden fence erector. So, um, yeah, that that knocked me back a peg or two. But I don't think, I think looking back, maybe um, professional athlete wasn't on the, uh, wasn't part of the algorithm to, for me to try and uh, go after. But uh, yeah, like I said, I don't, it, it wasn't necessarily a choice. I, I knew what I wanted to do. Uh, I knew that it was going to require a, a lot of sacrifice. Um, we, I've said this before, um, when, when I was young and, and, and aspiring to make it and how driven I was, I was sacrificing the present for the future. Um, there, there was a lot of that, you know, kids being kids, um, young lads being bored, you know, made some decisions that, you know, they probably shouldn't do or they might regret, but I always had rugby or that desire at, at the, the forefront of my mind when I was you know, potentially flirting with some bad choices. So I'm I'm very grateful for for having that. But um, yeah, I, I was I was pretty obsessed with um, trying to I guess in, again in inverted commas make it probably from about the age of fourteen really. Any regrets from not becoming a, a fence erector? Not that um, there's anything against not not that there's anything against fence erectors. Um, no, yeah, I, get, I think, like you say, you know, if someone's erecting garden fences up and down the country, it's, it's a job, do it with passion, do it the best you can. But no, no and even now that my uh, professional sporting career is, is finished, uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not in the market for a job uh, putting people's fences up. Jammer, it's, you were obviously mature head and, and quite a strong-willed head even on young shoulders at a point. So decisions that you could have easily gone the other way in terms of doing what your mates were doing or probably getting into a little bit of trouble and you didn't. So quite mature from that regard. I, I know, well, we both know, we know you, you're a big reader. Has that always been the case? Were you into stuff from a young age uh, or was that something that came the older you got? Yeah, I, I probably, I did a little, did like to sort of read and, and learn, you know, throughout school. Obviously I had um, the sort of not distraction of sport or rugby, but that was at the forefront of my, at my, of my mind. Um, but it probably what probably those sort of early 20s years, I was just focusing on trying to make it, trying to better myself and, you know, then enjoying the sort of advantages that being a, professional sportsman give you um you know and just sort of being one of the lads I guess um but yeah probably a little bit later I sort of turned my hand to, to a few more books and and some more informative stuff um rather than just sort of you know sleepwalking through life and um I guess living in the present too much 
we've touched on it. My dad mentioned he, he obviously started at Saints, went to Canterbury and St. George in Australia. Now, at the time that you went to Australia in 2011, it, it probably wasn't as popular for players in the UK as it was now. I know now there's a lot more doing it. And I think probably players like yourself are the ones that went over and had success that opened the door somewhat for, for others. At the time, it could be seen as a risk. And given you you were already a legend at Saints, so you'd only been, I say you'd only, you'd been at Saints, I think, within in the first team at that point for, for seven, eight seasons, and you were a legend. Was it a risk leaving? And, and really, what was the thought process behind your decision to challenge yourself in what is the best, league for rugby in the world yeah I, I mean I guess there was an element of risk in the decision to come um, but also I was I was safe in the knowledge that if I came and didn't like it I could always go back um, in terms of how I come to the conclusion to to, to come over to Australia uh, and play in the NRL we'll probably take you back to my first ever touring experience at, at sort of 15 I was picked on a touring team to, to come out to Australia and like I said before, um, as a family growing up, we, we got to holiday a little bit. Like, we, um, But because there were so many of us, you know, we'd, we'd sort of drive to France and, and had some great family holidays there, but we never really got on a plane anywhere. In fact, the only time I'd ever been on a plane was to go to the Isle of Man, which for those of you that don't know, it's like a 20-minute a flight from Liverpool um, or you can get the boat. So uh, we flew there and got the boat back because one of my uncles lived there. Anyway... We come to Australia on this rugby tour and, yeah, sort of my um, experience, world experience was, was pretty minimal. Come to Australia and I, I can't remember where I was, but I think we were up somewhere near Brisbane and I was just a bit like, wow, like, this this is mad. This place is just so different. Um, a, lot, a lot of similarities, but a bit awestruck by the place. And came, he, came here as, like, a bit of a fanboy as well of the NRL. I was buying all the shirts, shorts, taking home DVDs from the footy show, the Andrew Johns DVD, um, all these different things, like getting a, um, a Steeden rugby league ball, bringing that back. Um, and also around that, that, on that tour, that was probably the, the first time um, I'd been in a full-time environment where I was used to just training evenings. And, and that gave us, on that tour, we were, tra- we were doing like two practices a day. Um, you know, field in the morning, weights in the afternoon, that sort of stuff. So I was like, wow, this is part of it. But I remember at that moment in time, I can remember sort of making a deal with myself that if my career goes the way I want it to go and the opportunity to come out and play in Australia ever comes up, I'd have to take it. Now, it's easy to say that as a sort of 15-year-old, you know, fast forward to, I think I was 25, 26 at the time. Yeah, there's a, a legitimate option to come. Um, St. Helens wanted me to stay and I sort of looked at it kind of I, I felt like I had to go and answer the question of what would life be like in Australia what if what I didn't want to do is is I could have signed an agreement to stay at St. Helens at 30 at 35 at 40 50 60 whatever age look back and go oh what, what would have happened if I'd have gone to Australia I wonder what life might have been like I wonder what yeah, what, what might have happened over there. So I just thought to myself, I have to go and answer that question. So, yeah, I basically did that. You know, as I say, being exposed to Australia from a young age, 
and always sort of been, you know, I, I love my hometown in, in Liverpool and my goal, but I had always sort of been attracted to, to living away as well. Um, you know, it's not without its difficulties, but, um, you know, one of my brothers, he teaches English as a foreign language. He's been all over the world. And, um, yeah, I guess, you know, not not to, to downplay where I'm from or anything like that, but there was a big attraction from from like sort of teenage years to to go and live away somewhere and, and, and live somewhere else and experience a sort of different culture and way of life. So you've obviously played the UK, played in Australia, several different teams. So you mentioned Saints, Canterbury, St. George. You played for England, Great Britain. You've You've done the works. Played under lots of different coaches and I'm sure lots of different coaching styles. Now, without... I don't, you don't need to mention names or anything like that, but what qualities did you like from coaches that you worked under? What were things that floated your boat, so to say? Yeah, uh, well, it's probably at, at different points in my career, I've needed different styles of of coaches. So one that really springs to mind is is Daniel Anderson. He, he came into St. Helens in midway through the 2005 season where I was sort of in and out of the team. I didn't really know which position I was playing. I, I thought it was the second row. Um, he came in and basically said, mate, you're a middle forward. That's it. Forget your days on the edge. They're gone. So there was that. He was he was playing into the point. And I can remember the conversation we had in our first off-season about where, where he thought I was in in the sort of list of, of, of English middle forwards. And... Um, and sort of give me something to, to strive to do. Well, can, can you get in the top four? If you want to play for your country, you've got to be in the top four. Like that's, it's as simple as that. You, two, two players start and two players come off the bench in your position. So if you want to play for Great Britain or play for England, that's where you need to be. And he's like, you're probably about 10th to 12th now. But mate, it's on you to get there. We see the potential and you will put the work into you. But ultimately it's, it's up to you to do it. So, yeah, he was a, a massive influence on me as a as a youngster, and then obviously as sort of grew into more of a you know a, a more of a main, mainstay player, a more important player. He he put things around me that you know really gave me the confidence to to go out and be you know one of the Saints' main men. It was through sort of injuries that I, that I got that opportunity, but he really helped me along the way in that sense as well with with um, some of the work that he put into me. So been fortunate to work with some great coaches but um I'm yeah I'm I'm really pleased that the way the way things worked out there with with Daniel coming in at the time he came in and me being a sort of 19 year old as well it was um yeah I'm, I'm forever grateful for for Daniel and the the influence and um, he had on me well before you left St Helens as a 26 year old uh, Jamie you were already viewed as a leader and maybe Daniel played a part in that where you've morphed into a different character, but you didn't know. It was just organic in nature. Now, leader both in action and words. When you came back in 2020 for your swan song, we know your leadership qualities played a huge and integral part in, in the path to the 2020 grand final, uh, ultimately winning the game. What do you put your leadership qualities down to? Um, I've certainly grown as a leader. I think at, at first I was sort of thrust into that role of 
in in that leadership role and sort of wore my heart on my sleeve, was very passionate. I hated sort of, I don't like swearing, but I hated shit practice. I hated incompetence. And and I wasn't perfect. Like, I'm sure the, the people around me at that time would, would could quickly say, like, well, Jamie, you did this and you did that. And I'm not, you know, going to try and justify some of the decisions I made, but that's the sort of leader I was. But also the team that we came into was was very hard on each other. And that was the environment. It was, you know, I, I can tell you where to go and you can tell me where to go. But when it's done, we're going to crack on with it. So we, it was a bit of a different time where, you know, there was no, no, no sugarcoating things. It, it was, we called spades spades and, you know, we tear shreds off each other. But at the end of the day, it, it got left on the training field. So, Sort of as this sort of new leadership style was coming in, I was probably a bit more in that mould, and yeah, it probably it it doesn't it doesn't have its legs, it doesn't have legs, and yeah, I, I was getting frustrated. I'm an emotional guy as well, do you know what I mean? So it's hard to to sort of control a lot of times, but I guess as I um, I sort of matured and, and got exposed to to different leadership styles um, and sort of coached in that being in different leadership positions, obviously I think leadership is about having a destination and and knowing how to get there. That's what it is. There's there's different facets to it and there's different methods, but a lot of it comes down to communication, listening. That's a big one. And these are all sort of attributes that that I've had to that I've really had to work on. Because fundamentally deep down I am that passion guy. I'm that all in guy. I'm not just go for it just let's get after it and then ask questions later but even towards the back end I would get very frustrated at sort of incompetence and bad decision making used to frustrate me but that's who I was and for the teammates that have been on the end of one of my um, sprays I'm, I'm sure they'd be able to tell you that it came from a good place and you know, ten seconds later, after the fact, we're still mates. Do you know what I mean? It's not. It's not one of those like I'm. You drop that ball, so I'll let you know how I feel about it, and then I'm not going to talk to you for two weeks. Sim- similar to me, if I dropped the ball and made a mistake, and my teammate came at me, well, yeah, let, let like yeah, I, I get it. You know, we we, we both want to. We all want to win. We're all striving for perfection. You're not going to get it, but there's certainly never any grudges held or felt and I'd, I'd hope that anyone that I've ever played with or, or, or been with on the on the journey would, would sort of back me up on that I, I I never 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 forget this so being a being a Saints fan Nosley Road on the terraces I from a leadership standpoint and I think this is somewhat what made you a fan favourite is whenever the opposition would score you and Paul Wellens were generally the two that would do it. When they would score, you would be in and you could see, I mean, you'd, your face would be going red. <laughs> but your face is, it's red now, but that's, I think that's from being in the sunshine. You'd yeah. be, the blood would be boiling. And I think fans obviously would see that and they just love the passion. And it, it was just, it was pure, it was honest, but it was obvious that you cared. Now, 2020, my dad's mentioned it. You came back, Swan Song. You finished your your career in the most dramatic fashion you could ever imagine. So it was that it was the Sergio Aguero moment of rugby league. And like I said, Saints fan for me, that was 
the emotions that I felt were just unexplainable, really. Um, now, you've come back to the club midway through the season. COVID's hit. We don't know if, no one knows if the season's finishing. Now, Jack Wellsby scores, literally the, the last touch. And for those who haven't seen the game, even just watching that last 30 seconds for from a sports perspective is worth it. Now, he goes and scores. Footage on TV, when the try goes up of the video ref deciding, you're knelt over with your head in your hands. Only then for when, when Saints score that you sprint on the field, tries given. And it was just... Oh, I, it, it was incredible. Can you explain the lead up to that moment and really the emotion when you realise that you've just come back to the hometown club and you've you've finished your career with that win? Yeah, and and even honestly, Dave, you, you talking about it, it it fills me up even now almost. Um, it, even though the fact that it was it was a year ago and um. I don't play anymore, but it, it actually gets me um, quite emotional to, to think back to that to that day. Just shows how powerful sports can be, doesn't it? That's the, the immense power of what a ball or a sport does to people's lives. Uh, it's profound. It's so impactful. And for you to, for you to be, yeah. just just through asking the question, it just shows how much the game is, and it was, and still continues to be, to you. Yeah. So sorry, lads. I just yeah, just got me thinking. Um, I guess, yeah, I I have thought about that um, moment in that game and. And everything that went into it, and it's it's the stuff of fiction. I think the reality is, Jamie, you you couldn't write it. That I think it's something you just couldn't even script. Yeah, I guess you know if a group of Hollywood directors and script writers were in the room trying to you know come up with a plot and someone wrote down exactly what happened on that day and and even all the backstories that the, the sort of the subplots with with covid and the season was off it was on again and will it go ahead no no fans in in the stadium my personal story Sean O'Loughlin's personal story both of us you know have played the game for a long time both represented England and Great Britain for you know many many times together both it's the last game my history with grand finals having lost, I think five with St. Helens and then two with Canterbury. Uh, yeah, if, if a group of if a group of writers and, and directors they they saw that script, they they'd say put it in the shredder. Like just it's just unbelievable. No, no one's gonna buy that. Like you know that even Wigan missing the goal, Saints being Saints being in. I thought we were in. in control of the game but we couldn't get points on the board and then Wigan missed the goal and then Tommy Makinson he, as he's taken the field goal attempt the the final the siren goes and it hits the post and then I think hits the bar and it bounces over and then Wellsby chases and th there's more to that chase than meets the eye I'm not, I'm not going to go too much into it but that's that's a reflection of 
the attributes that that club bring to players and the players that they recruit and develop is 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 why you chase those lost causes. That's a that's a St Helens thing. And just on, on a personal note for me, and um, that, that that game was it was it was a T junction in my life. You know, as I say, I'd 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 been part of teams that had lost big games before. And there were there were sort of T junctions, but you know, you, you always knew you had you had a, you had next year or or you had the next thing within your sport and career that you could go to. But for me, that this was it. And I I'd been through heartache before and it was that that game put me at peace with 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 so much in my life. Um like I say, rugby meant so much to me. We we were part of a successful team when we when, when I first came through at St Helens. But um, you this the, the sort of the, the Premiership and the, and the Grand Final win had eluded me for for fourteen years. I haven't won the first one in two thousand six, and then you know even go, going back to, to, for my decision to to come to come back to St Helens um, wasn't an easy one. I've I've not told too many people this story, but. I'll leave out the stuff about St George, but we basically started the started the season um, two losses. COVID go COVID shuts down the game. We start again. I'm very optimistic. We lose the next two, and I, I left that game after we'd lost the fourth game of the season. And I'd made the decision to to retire there and then. And it was probably a bit of a rash decision. Well, obviously it didn't come to fruition. I didn't end up retiring there and then, but. I just couldn't. I couldn't commit to the cause anymore. Um, I had bone on bone uh, in my hip. I needed a hip resurfacing. I'd had some, you know, a, a history of concussions, um, and the cause just wasn't worth it anymore for for me. So I sort of rang Paul Wellens and said, um, "Mate, who, who was a, a, a bit being a, a you know a, a friend since I was." day one stepping into St. Helens Club he's, he's one of those players who are fortunate enough to win stuff with he's one of the assistant coaches at St. Helens I said mate I'm retiring and and at the time as well St. Helens had been speaking to me about playing in the 2021 season but I, I just couldn't hold on for that long there was, there was way too long to go and I just couldn't do it anyway he, he sort of tells me that Luke Thompson a lad who plays in my position was leaving to come to Australia and I said I know Paul but that's not till next year. He's like, no, he's moving now. I was like, oh, well, that sort of changes things. So if there's a spot there, should I go and take it? And then obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Fast forward a few conversations with Mike Rush, the CEO, and uh, Christine Wolf, the coach. I had to I had to clear it with the Dragons as well, who obviously had a coach under pressure, probably not that keen on letting one of his more experienced players go, but and then obviously my, my, my partner and children as well happened to move for, for six months. And then the idea of moving back in six months too and having to do two weeks hotel quarantine, all that sort of stuff, life on hold. Um, when I did it, and I probably think, thinking back that the decision to go, yeah, I had to really consider it because, you know, there's not many players go back to their, the, the team they made, made their name and, and it, and it worked out. And, St. Helens where I think we were coming eighth at the time, so outside the playoffs. So it was like, what was it going back for? 
I guess really, I, I never said it publicly. I was going, I said publicly that I was going back for the opportunity to try and win something, but really, that's what I was going back for, and that's why I moved my family halfway around the world and put life on hold here in Australia. And you know, yeah, traveling during a global pandemic is insane. Like it just, it just is, and we had to move halfway around the world twice, and it was all for this, for this prize of. Of, of being part of a, a grand final winning team and you know it just yeah like I say with sometimes like sport moments rugby league probably doesn't get the accolades it, it deserves with the sort of nature of our sport in, in, my, in, in my opinion but but that captured the the you know captured the a, a lot of people up and down the nation like you know it, it got recognition in, in a lot of places it doesn't normally happen just because of of all the different subplots and if it's come down to that moment, it was just, oh yeah, it, it, it genuinely, it makes me emotional now to, to think about it and to be there in that, in that moment of obviously sports change a lot throughout the years. Technology has become a part of it. It is for the greater good. I believe that we get decisions right, but Jack and the team are celebrating I'm not quite sure. I'm on. I'm on the sidelines at the time. I can hear the Wigan bench go up and cheer, saying, "Yes, he's offside." And then they start to show the grounding of the ball, which obviously means it looks like it's going to be a try. This, but I couldn't really work out if if Jack was in touch or if he'd gone out if he'd gone out the in goal or whatever. And yeah, I think that the fourth official was next to me, and. James, they're gonna give it, and I was just like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere until I see that T R Y, those three letters up on the on on the screen. I guess you know, obviously with the game being over, one you know, once that try scored, it just was just this, I guess this outpouring of of emotion for me. I sort of lost control of my um, bodily functions. I think if memory serves me right, I me and Alex warmly embrace and yeah it was just a, a bizarre feeling a, an outpouring of emotion and and for, for me like for that for those group of lads um for everyone at that organization to to bring me back because it probably was a little bit of a gamble for them as well you know in, in terms of bringing back a, a player that's that applied their trade before and and just for me it was that I just can't thank them enough for for accepting me in as one of their own again and and giving me that putting me at peace with with all the the crap that's happened during my career some some ups some downs but yeah that was it it was I, and this word gets used all the time when people can't think of something to describe I think unbelievable but it actually was it actually was unbelievable like I say Hollywood script writers would say get that out of this production room because it's just it's too phony it's too cheesy it's no we're, we're not having it we'll we'll take aspects of it but all of those things happening at once nah in the backdrop of COVID with the season on again off again and for it to come down to that a Saints Wigan game as well like one of the biggest derbies in in British sport no come on you just you, you're going too far now it did happen and, and I got to witness it first and it was I'm honestly just so grateful for for, for everyone at that club to to do what well, they did and 
that consistent application of little things that we, we talked about in Christian Wolf's training for chaos. And yeah, it was, oh, yeah, like I say, unbelievable. Well, Jammer, you, you're obviously very, you're an emotional guy. And there's been highs, there's been lows in your playing career where you've five grand finals over year two at Canterbury. But how do you deal with that? Because it's, that will impact and influence your performances. And as a consequence of that, will impact and influence how your teammates or how you are perceived by teammates. So how have you been able to cut the loop, put a circuit breaker in and then get back on track again and get back on track quickly? Yeah, I, I guess it's not an easy thing to do because like I've already said, rugby was my life. For, for, for many years there and it would certainly affect certainly over here in Australia because of the, the publicity and um, the amount of press that it gets it would sort of affect my day-to-day life so if we lost and we had plans to to do something the next day I, I'd you know if we lost I'd more than likely cancel those plans and it might not seem like much but just yeah losing would get me down in the dumps but having said that you know if you win actually you know what let's organise something let's go let, let's do something fun together R- rugby has taught me so many lessons but one of the key lessons in life that, life that I've, I've learned from from playing our sport is um, is the benefit of hardship and learning how to lose and, and dealing with setbacks and just having that that resilience and that ability to no matter the circumstances, to to get up and and go again, and you know, all, all is all is not always lost. Well, during your career, you did you played with some very good teams, both sides of the world. But when you've played with a different playing group, so you've moved on, you've gone to a different playing group. How did you build trust between yourself and your teammates, and, and vice versa? Yeah, um, I, trust trust is a is a big one, um, and, and belief in each other as well. Um, I guess trust starts in in training and and how you apply yourselves and and or how you apply yourself. And I think when people would would see me on the on the training ground, they they'd see a someone that would consistently apply themselves to, especially little things. You know, I was a, a stickler for the for the details. And you know those little things mattered, and like I've said before, shit practice used to drive me crazy. But I'd always be someone that would put in, uh, do a lot of extras as well. So I think that sort of gains respect and and earns that trust, you know. And obviously your your, your previous performances go a long way as well. So it's 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 easy. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of conversation around there about you know what what we want to do, what how we want to apply ourselves, but ultimately it comes down to, to action and and not letting people down and and and, and showing those characteristics that in in most in, in all aspects of life that you, you know you're not going to let your mates down who are standing next year. I'm going to take it back a little bit. You mentioned you talked about training chaos, so you said Christian Wolf train for chaos and it obviously played a part in what what went on in that grand final win what do you mean by that and 
not only what do you mean by it, but how how did you how did he do that to then enable you to be prepared for it? Yeah, well, well we we were fortunate that we had um, a really good group that you can focus on these type of things. So normally, at the end of at the end of training on. It was normally our like four days before a game, so our, our bigger day of, of the week. And um, the, the last 10 minutes would be situation or scenario training. You know, the, we had, we would be training against the sort of reserve team or, or the players that weren't playing that week. And you would throw out a situation. There's five minutes left on the clock. And this is the scoreline. And he would referee, and he'd obviously referee appallingly. So given the massive advantage to the, res- the reserves, so we would either be ahead or behind. He might put, he might take a player from the field of play. So we're playing with, playing with 12. He might start the, he might start the ball. We're on our trial line with 12 men. How do we combat this? If, if they score, then we get the kickoff to go again. So we were well-versed in the, in the sort of the training for chaos, the situational awareness. Even if you look at that moment, Tommy Makinson, who is the left winger, not, not, not normally stereotypically the player to take the drop goal attempt. He comes from his wing in to try and nail it because that's what we planned for. So, and and then the the Jack Wellsby stay on side. It's not the only example of people chasing what might appear to be a lost cause during that game. There's many of those examples where where people within our playing group would make decisions that might not have any benefit and will more than likely go unnoticed. But when it does, everyone sees it and they're like, oh, wow, why was Jack Wellsby chasing that ball? He was chasing that ball because he's chased every other ball. And if Jack doesn't get there, then Robes is the next one. When Jack Wellsby scored the try, there was three or four or maybe even five Saints players in the picture not one not one Wigan player and that's not a knock on Wigan's culture or anything I know what it's like sometimes when you might be putting pressure on the on the on the kicker or whatever it may be but the Saints lads were there and if Jack doesn't get it then I think Robes is on it as well so um, that's just a, an, an example of the the mentality of, of the Saints players were and the organisation was and, and that's something that that Christian sort of focused on. And I think that that particular aspect of his coaching style, that that little bit of training for chaos, practicing it week in, week out. I, I always use this phrase about consistent application to the little things. That's what I used to try and do in, in my career. I thought, you know, I, I, I'd keep putting the work in the extras, keep applying myself in little areas of the game to make sure I stay in the team. And it was a consistent approach from, from Christian. And yeah, it came down. It, it it takes eighty minutes to 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 win a game of rugby league, and sometimes only one moment to lose it. Or in that, it was one moment to win it, and and that's what it come down to. And yeah, fortunately for for me and 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 everybody involved with St Helens, and that Jack chased that ball, and yeah, we got to lift the trophy. There's a quote: "A goal without a plan is just a dream." So we want to win the grand final. And we're looking forward to win it. But when it comes down to that last moment or certain moments in a game, do you have a plan to combat what's coming? And I think that that side of it where you've you've talked about it, if there's no plan in place, does Tommy Makinson come in? Mm. If you haven't prepared for that moment, are you then able to execute it the way that you did? And obviously 
chasing the ball down is that it's that you mentioned is a cultural thing. All the things leading up to it about being getting yourself in certain positions is it was it wasn't a fluke. It was done by design. Yeah, I think I think what it what it come it, it's it's a couple of things. It's situational awareness and, and a phrase that I've sort of come across in and it's stacking the odds in your favour. Like you can't really guarantee things in life. You really can't. Probably one of the only guarantees is I think they say death and taxes, right? Unless you've got a little place in the Cayman Islands, then maybe it's just death. But what you can't do is guarantee success. You know, people might try and sell you that, but it's bullshit. But what you can do is you can stack the odds in your favour. So I can make a decision to eat junk food or eat you know something that's going to be more inclined to how an athlete might eat. You know, some people might choose the junk food. That's fine. They might choose it once a month. They might choose it every day. Are you stacking the odds in your favour or against you? You might choose to chase a lost cause. Are you, are you stacking the odds in your favour or against? Sometimes to people it's it's not obvious, but I've always sort of, it's probably one of the things that has, has stayed with me throughout my rugby career, that phrase is, is you can't guarantee success but you can stack the odds in your favour by everything that you do or everything that you don't do. You can choose to stretch or not stretch after a session. You can choose to ice bath. You can choose to sauna. You can choose not to. You can choose to wear compression garments. And sometimes all these little thang- things add up. Sometimes they, they're they not available to you. COVID was a big test of that because we weren't allowed to have, um, you know, our soft tissue therapies. We weren't allowed to have ice baths at training. All these different things got taken away from us. So we had to look at new different ways to you know, keep stacking the odds in our favour. And I think that's going back to St. Helens and, and the group there, how they came out of lockdown was pretty evident that the lads, you know, they hadn't had the best start of the season coming off a, a magnificent season the season before in, in 2019. But you could see that when they went away, and you know a lot gets said about culture and you know and, and team attitude, but what they what those lads were doing when no one was watching was was pretty evident for everybody to see in that first game back when we played Catalan and uh, when the season started again. Well, Jam, are you this consistent application to the little things, which ultimately can help stack things in your favour, uh, takes some mental resilience. It also will have, particularly in a in the sport that you're playing, it'll also bring with it some physical demands as well. So can you share with us what some of these insights are of elite athletes around the mental and physical demands put on to rugby league players? Yeah, a, a lot gets said about mental toughness and, and resilience and and whatnot, I guess the easiest way to describe it is you've got this burning desire to stop and not do something, but you keep doing it anyway. And you keep going and you keep persevering despite the logical thing to do and your body screaming at you saying, stop, 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 stop. I can't do that. I can't do that. You just get on and do it anyway. And that's probably the easiest way of describing it. Obviously, you're playing in a team sport. Having a, if you've got a playing group that are all of a similar mindset, they're driving each other either through 
showing through an action or they'll certainly let you know about it if you're not putting your weight. The success of St. Helens, because we're not saying the likes of other teams are not doing similar, but the conditioning training that Christian had done with you, do you think that also played a part? Yeah, most definitely. And and when you've got characters like that within your playing group, you you don't want to let them down. You sort of look to your left and to your right and you see guys like James Roby, Morgan Knowles, Alex Wormsley, you know, all all those different names at St. Helens and when I've done it at different clubs as well. I don't want to let those, those men down. We're fighting for the same cause, but that that's probably been the biggest burden or the biggest amount of pressure that that I've ever felt is is not wanting to let my teammates down. That that's sort of what I've tried to sort of pride my performances on is, you know, I'm not going to compare rugby league to war or anything like that. But I think that was a bit of a mantra of, of many of the the great armies is not letting their their mates down who are next to them, and. Yeah, I, again, I don't want to compare it to that because it's different. Um, but yeah, we sort of tried to apply that uh, in the in the teams that I've that I've played in, because um, that's what you don't want to do. You you like if you if you ever are in that position where you do feel like you've let your teammates down, it's it's pretty horrible. You want the the world to swallow you up. I think Gemma, it's a good time to touch on it. We're talking about physical demands and putting your body on the line you've you've openly spoke about concussions and about taking responsibility for your own actions can you share what you mean when you when you've mentioned that in the past yeah so so obviously it's a oh it's been a topical subject for 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 a number of years now um when i was first sort of asked about it I, I probably had the sort of die on my shield mentality and I, I'd happily leave the field, you know, on, on a stretcher or, you know, you know, incapacitated. And I said this and, and part of me meant it, but part of me was sort of wanting to get that sort of reputation out there playing. The, it was the game within the game a little bit of like the position that I play, you know, you, you want to, you, you want people to, to fear you. And I sort of thought that if people thought that about me, then that was to my advantage. So there was a little bit of the, the, the game within the game. Um, but but, I, but I, did, I did suffer a number of concussions throughout my career. And I did have to think quite deeply about, uh, about everything around it. And I, I was... I said on a, on a, in, a, in an interview um, this year, actually, this is when I when I finished playing, is is that maybe for me the meaning of life was to find something worth dying for, and I, and I stand by that, like because I thought about who I was and just the, the purpose um, that rugby league gave, gave me and playing sport gave me. Um, it, it it was everything to me, and yeah, it, I, I I didn't I didn't say that lightly. Um, I I thought about you know I asked myself a, a lot of questions. Just you know, what gives my life meaning? What's my purpose? 
you know, what's what's the alternative? Like if I take sport away from me, you know, I spoke about those formative years in terms of like every decision I made, or pretty much every decision I made had you know, I, I always had rugby as was always there in that decision-making process. If I just, if it, say at 26, I get med- medically suspended or to make a decision that I'm not going to play, what's the alternative for me? What what role have I got to play in society? What what purpose do I have in my life? I didn't have children at the time. Like, that, I, I ultimately answered that question by, well, I'm just going to keep playing. And, and I thought about on a bit of a deep dive on life and you know is is life all about longevity is why why am I here on this planet is it to live as long as possible yeah and I sort of I did some some reading around it and I, I don't talking about stacking the odds in your favor well most decisions that you make can have an effect on your life expectancy where you live your, your vocation whether you choose to what, what you choose to eat and drink and even even looking at the, the sort of history I think to like as of today the the global life expectancy is like about 72 and a half years of age that's higher than any country in 1950 so we're very for and this we're very for we're a very fortunate time to be alive in the 1800s, 25% of people died before their fifth birthday. A further 25% of people died before finishing their teenage years. But then what happened is advancements in technology, in medicine, in hygiene, in information, this helped us. Well, and also back then as well, people were living in pretty much poverty or absolute poverty and they didn't get to ponder their future. It was a day-to-day existence. But with with all these advancements, we now get to a stage in this, not, not for everyone. And I feel for those people that don't get this, have, have the fortune to be able to, to do this. But basically, age-related disease now is going to get you. For, for most people, what, what that means is, 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 is fundamentally, the overwhelming majority of people will get to pick their poison. And... Some people choose alcohol, drugs, adventure, misadventure. Maybe I was picking rugby league. Maybe that was my poison. And and I can't change who I was or, or what I've done. Um, but now moving forward, what I can do is, is go back to stacking the odds in my favour. So I'm not sure where I stand on the genetic lottery in terms of being exposed for potential degenerative brain diseases because there is a there is a genetic factor. Um, there are some things that I've done that would most likely lead to that, but there's some decisions I can make moving forward in order to try and stack the So I'm actively trying to do that. It's I'm a perfect no, but you know what? I take responsibility for for those decisions and I am who I am. My heart does go out for those people that don't that, that are suffering and, and have people at a younger age suffering. But we're very fortunate to, to be alive in this time where we get to ponder our future. And and, and also, when I was playing, like I say, I, I made so many sacrifices 
growing up. So I was privileging the future over the present, but then I got to that present. And then what I was doing is I was privileging the present over the future. And in time, I, I might look back at this interview and, and my attitude, how it used to be and think, mate, why? But that's who I was and there's no escaping that. And this is who I am now. I was attracted to the danger and the potential for, for violence. I, I really was. And that that's, that's just who I was, you know? And if it wasn't, like I say, I, I spoke about the decisions I was making I'm, with everything that's going on with class action lawsuits and stuff like that. I can only speak for me. I'm forever grateful for the game. It's, it's given me so much and it looks like it's going to continue to do that as well. Well, Gemma, this has been a real deep insight into the life of a, a very, very highly competitive sportsman. But equally, it gives us a great insight into the mindset of an highly intelligent individual that has taken actions and really, if you like, Johnny Wilkinson, just prior to the 2003 World Cup out in Australia, just prior to that, had said he'd immersed his soul into uh, rugby union. He committed fully to it. And for that, and for that alone, the outcomes were, were obviously stacked more towards him being the best that he could possibly become. Now, final question for you, Gemma. What have you learned most about yourself from playing the sport that you loved and you've immersed your soul in? Yeah, I, you, you're right there, Keith. It's, it's, um, it's been my... Um, my, my life's work, it, it, it really has. Um, I guess rugby's taught me so many lessons, some, some good, some bad. Um, yeah, and it's, it's given me some, some great memories. Some of the things that, that it's taught me is the power of sport. And it's just, again, I, I say this, it's a made-up game with made-up rules. When I was at Canterbury, Canterbury um, is a team that's played out of Western Sydney, Belmore, very, very diverse area. Uh, people from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, different races and ethnicities and, and, and religions and stuff like that. But I'll never forget we were we were on a bit of a run in, in 2014. And just my missus was was telling me that like just the people embracing was just phenomenal. Like it, it wasn't about Anything else, it was just, are you in blue and white? And they embraced each other. And little things like that, what, what, what sport does to people. And there's a lot of division among society and, and for different reasons and, and rightly so, but sport has the power to, to bring people together and to have been part of that, to, to witness that. It, it just shows how powerful it is. And, and another thing is the, the power of giving. And um, when I was younger, I thought I've earned every single jersey that I that I put on my back and I want to keep this. It's about me. But as I got a bit older, I sort of grew to understand that people, some people, are, you know, I, sp I spoke about people doing it tough and, and how I feel for them. And that was probably something I'd, I'd considered uh, when I sort of changed, when, when I was thinking about concussion and life and all that. But there are some people with some pretty shitty circumstances, but they see you and they, they, they love you because they're the fans of the team that you play for, that they support. And 
just having an ability to to sort of give back and whether it's you know someone that's that's struggling might come to training or, or come to a game to a match worn shirt or, or or a pair of boots or, or a training top and the joy on people's faces was it's just something that it's such a cool thing to to be able to do and, and to be able to give people because there's a lot of people doing it tough and you just let them help them just forget and you can see that the look in you know in, in parents' eyes when when you, when you do something for their kid, it just takes away that pain for a minute or so, or whatever, or a day. And they just remember coming to see, you know, the England team train or Saints train or or the or the Bulldogs or the Dragons come and train or watch us in the game. It's it's a it's a pretty special, cool feeling to have. And I guess one of the other things that that sports taught me is um, like to, to persevere. This is my story. Obviously, I've. I was um, unfortunate to to be on the losing end of some big games, some season-defining games. But when I when I left Saints in, in 2011, we, we played in the, my last game. There was was for St Helens, and it was in the grand final. We lost the lead, and young Tommy Makinson was was distraught. I think it was his first season in first team, and I was gutted. But I had to put on a, a strong face for Tommy and the poor lad. He, he was balling like a like a toddler, inconsolable. And I was like Tommy. It's all right, mate. You, th- these things happen. And anyway, sort of. Obviously, time goes by, and it all came full circle. And I guess through perseverance and yeah, a, a bit of circumstance, and sometimes the, the stars just align. And um, yeah, Tommy, had, Tommy Makinson had stayed there, and, and I came back, and we just had a at the end of that grand final game, we just had a little embrace and just. So I said, you, it, it, I think you can see it on YouTube or whatever. You just were just saying, do you remember? Do you remember? And he's like, yeah, yeah. And we just, that that moment back in 2011 and you flash forward nine years and yeah, we we, we managed to, to do something together. And me and Tommy are, are, are really close. So the, the, the feelings and emotions that this stupid game can give you, um, it's uh, it's phenomenal. Look, there's some great memories, great memories that only those present would actually know what it felt like. When I said those present, those that actually played and those that experienced it from from a spectacle. Now, for the ones, the fans that literally adored you at St. Helens, what can you say to them? Yeah, um, it was strange um, coming back to to play. I played a couple of games with no crowd here in Australia, and it was um, it just sports not the same um, without the fans. But one thing I was I was really excited about and is uh, is, is playing again in front of those those fans at, at St Helens and and some people that um, you know were, were with me on the journey from from such a young age. Yeah, you know, I played all my junior rugby in St Helens, and you know, a lot of those volunteer coaches were, were fans and. And all that, and I had a—I think I had a, a really good relationship with the fans um, when I was playing there. But I guess I, I never got to say hello. I never got really the opportunity to say goodbye. But um, I'd just like to say thank you. Well, Jammer, on behalf of of my dad and I, we want to we want to thank you for coming on. Our, people see you as this uh, as an athlete, as this big man that would 
just run through walls really you were you were highly competitive you were relentless you were a winner and really in terms of of your career you probably you look at positions etc you were without doubt and this is for me being obviously a big rugby league fan one of the best players i've i've had the pleasure of of watching both on tv and live but i, I think there's there's a lot more to the man than this battering ram you're you're obviously you're a highly intelligent man you're very philosophical and there's there's a lot behind you now you talked about fans and and providing things to people i guess that that just what sport does and i was one of those fans so i grew up on the terraces at nosley road and i i just loved watch i'd love it friday nights you go to the rugby and i got so much joy from obviously watching you and watching your passion and obviously you left saints you broke my heart but even from then on i always i, I followed your career i always wanted and, and and wished for you to have success and then you coming back for that swan song was just incredible i think it made everything i think in every every rugby fan and, and especially i know saints fans in particular it you getting that victory meant a lot to a lot of people and in a small town in St. Helens that it meant a lot to them. So for me personally as well, I, I'd like to thank you and look, obviously we, whatever is coming next for, for James Graham, we'll be following your journey. We wish you all the best with it. And we've got to thank you again for coming on today. No, it's been my pleasure, gents. Um, yeah. Little trips down memory lane. Uh, uh, I'm always fond of, of going there and, um, and, and sharing my story with with, with you two obviously is um, is pretty special as well. You've you've, you've looked after me. You made me emotional. Um, and yeah, I, I just want to want to want to thank you both for having me on and and um, for the for the listeners to hear my story. I think lastly, you know, like you say, I I became this athlete, this and, and whatever else. But there's countless number of people to to thank. Most importantly, my. Um, my family, uh, my mom, dad, and my sisters, and also my 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 partner and my two children who've who've, who've been along for the for the journey too. Have all supported me um, uh, through the good and bad, um, and that's that's what um, that's what it's about. Sometimes being there for for people when they re- really need you, and they've they've sure done that for me. Thanks for tuning in to the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast. And also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you, everybody.